All right, Roar Junior kids, if you sign up for Roar Junior, you can go out with Austin now downstairs. Um, I wanted Jeremy to read the uh, passage that Rob preached from last week uh, as well um, as the one we're going to be in tonight because it flows so beautifully into um, the first 10 verses in chapter 5. And, uh, and I'm super thankful um, that Rob uh, spoke um, last week. He gave a, a, a beautiful uh, illustration of uh, the tabernacle um, because uh, that's a massive part of the role of a high priest. Uh, as I was cleaning up last Sunday uh, in Treehouse, I noticed that there's a visual, uh, literal tabernacle that's like this big. It's like plastic with like nice little uh, tent, you know, like it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Um, but if you want a, a, a cool 3D depiction of the tabernacle, you can see that down there in the middle building. But um, yeah, the first, the last three verses in, in chapter four flow into chapter five. And, um, and, and what we're really going to be focusing on is uh, Jesus as our appointed superior high priest and source of salvation. Um, and this is, uh, Hebrews really is, is, the only book that ascribes the title high priest to Jesus so emphatically. Uh, the focus last week we saw was how Jesus is our sinless and sympathetic high priest. This week, the focus is that he is our appointed high, high priest and our source of eternal salvation. So it's pretty straightforward. Um, not only is he sympathetic, but he understands what we face and what we walk through in this flesh. Um, so he is compassionate and empathetic. Uh, he, he's, um, he understands and fills you when you hurt. He, he can relate to you, right? As, as 416 says, we receive mercy from him because he understands and helps those who are dependent upon him. So we have a high priest who is merciful, who is compassionate in relationship with us. And so Empathy is, uh, I had to look that word because like if you, if somebody ever asked you what, how would you define empathy and how is it different from sympathy, right? Being empathetic is to experience hurt with someone, is to share in their feelings and to show compassion towards them, right? We know Jesus can do that unlike anybody else, Right, and so this past week, when, when we got news that the pastor um, from Marble Springs had passed away, like, and, and we're praying for them and lifting them up, like, literally, Jesus alone can empathize with them. He he grieves and weeps with them, but also receives in his child at the very same time, right? And and so we know that our Lord can empathize with us in our weakness, in our suffering, in our trials, and and. Uh, and I think it's important for us to think about these things because um, we know where Jesus is, right? We sing about it. We read about it. He is the um, exalted son sitting at the right hand of God the Father right now, but that does not mean that he's distant. It does not mean that he's disconnected. It doesn't mean that he doesn't see or know what you're going through. It doesn't mean that he's detached from his people, Right? He, is, he is intimately involved with all of our ways. He, he's able to empathize with us. He knows the weariness of his church walking through this world. He completely understands. He's walked the same dirt that, that was covering those feet you saw on the screen. The dirt was on his feet. He walked on this rock. He 
was here. He understands. So in the first five verses tonight, we're going to see that the appointment of the office of the Levitical high priest. We're going to see it described to us uh, in the terms of man. We'll see how this is super paramount for Jesus to be human. And he had to be human in order to relate to us. Uh, And so um, let's pray, and we're going to read the first four verses together. Father, we are so humbled to be in this place where there's cushioned chairs and where there's air conditioning, where we have room, Lord, where we have lights to be able to see, where we have the availability of your word in multiple different formats. And and we don't want to take these things for granted, God. We, We praise you for this opportunity for you to speak to us as we read your word. We need your spirit to teach us. We need you, your spirit to open up our eyes, open up our ears. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us, teach us, convict us. Lord, encourage us, remind us that we need to have our eyes fixed on you as our source of salvation. You alone, Jesus, can do this. We ask it in your name. Amen. All right, starting in verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins. So obviously we know he's talking about human high priests, not Jesus here. Um, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So the first four verses are bookend with appointed. The high priests were appointed and they were called by God. All right, so Aaron was the first high priest called by God to this task, right? He didn't, he didn't volunteer for it, right? God called him to it. And, and, and so we know that men are appointed to represent um, people before God. So the high priest would mediate between God and man. You also notice that there's a massive difference between Jesus and the regular high priests. As, as pointed out in these first four verses, that Jesus was never ignorant or wayward. Jesus did not have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins because he was sinless. That's what we saw last week. He was without sin, right? So the, the priest also had to be fully human, in order to identify with humans. Jesus could identify with human frailty. He understood our weaknesses because he entered into the flesh, right? As we're going to see later, vividly laid out in this passage. Another massive difference between Jesus and just regular high priests is pointed out in verse 5. Let's look at verse 5 together. It says, So also Christ did not exalt himself, speaking of his humility, but made but to be made a high priest, but was appointed, there's that word again, by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Jesus didn't exalt himself. He was very humble. He allowed the Father to exalt him, right? God the Father appointed Jesus to be our high priest, and that made him unique, right, amongst all other. God confirmed that Jesus was his son. He did this multiple times, right? Audibly, never before was a high priest called the son of God, right? So it says, you are my son, today I've begotten you. This is him quoting Psalm 2, 7, right? And we saw that in chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. He's using it again here. 
The emphasis is on Jesus is not only human, but he is the eternal son of God. So, Jesus in his relationship with God was perfectly faithful as a perfect high priest. Jesus was perfectly faithful as a perfect high priest. And in his relationship with people, Jesus was perfectly compassionate as our great high priest. He was perfectly faithful as the perfect high priest. He was perfectly compassionate as our great high priest. His appointment to this office was unique. It was unlike any other. It was unique like a mysterious figure in the Old Testament, like verse 6 tells us. Look at it. It says, he also, God also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here he's quoting from the Psalms again, the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4. And, and God said this bringing to remembrance. He wanted the people to remember the unique king priest Melchizedek. Now, if you can go back in your brain to remember when we were studying through Genesis together, when we got to Genesis 14, right, that was the first time we were introduced to Melchizedek. That's the first time that, that Abraham and Mel met. So as I was studying this, I, I shortened it to Mel because I, saying Melchizedek is really hard over and over again. But Abe and Mel met together in Genesis 14. That also sounds a little not honoring them, so I'm not going to say that. But Abraham offered tithe to Melchizedek, therefore acknowledging his high priestly status. In verse 18 of Genesis 14, Melchizedek was the king of Salem, so it's probably Jerusalem, and he was, it says that he was the priest of God most high. So he was blessed. Um, Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, which means that uh, Abraham saw Melchizedek as superior to him. Right? And he offered tithes to him. So Melchizedek was not a priest of Israel because, get this, Abraham didn't have kids yet. Much later, Abraham had a great-grandson, Levi, and from him would the priestly line come. It was through the tribe of Levi that all of the priests for Israel would descend. Now, Melchizedek was unique in his office because he was appointed by God before Levi, so he prefigured Christ. Jesus was unique in his heavenly appointed high priestly office as well as the Son of God. As we'll see in verse 10, and then later Melchizedek will come back up in, in Hebrews 7, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, so he is more important than the Levitical priests. He prefigured them, He's more important than them. He's superior to them. So one of the main points of the passage tonight, at least in the first half of this, is that Jesus' appointment as high priest is superior than any other Levitical priests. Right? And, and so the, the focus of the next three verses, in verses 7, 8, and 9, is going to be on Jesus' solidarity with humanity and him being the source of our eternal salvation. So if you're a note taker, like verse 7, is, is he, he prayed and he wept. We can relate to that. Verse 8, he learned and suffered. We can relate to that. Verse 9, he obeyed perfectly. Well, we can't really relate to that, can we? But it's going to show us Jesus' solidarity with humanity. Um, this past week on Wednesday, I was talking with my Firefly uh, student. His name is Carson. We were going through some questions um, at Penwell, and one of the questions that we went through was, what does the law of God require? Or you could ask that question another way, what, what does salvation require? The answer is perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, 
to the commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as well, like God would, like God loved you. I don't know about you, but there's a problem here, right? Because no one is perfectly righteous. No one can perfectly obey the laws of God because no one loves God consistently. No one. No one loves their neighbor consistently. Not one of us, right, has, has cried out to the Father consistently like we should. Like we've all rebelled against the Lord. We, we have not feared the Lord as we should on a consistent basis. But Jesus, verse 7, says in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. How? with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. So one commentator said, flesh in this passage, the word flesh is fairly comprehensive in its terminology. It's depicting human weakness, subjection to danger and want and temptation, as well as obligation to the law of God. So Jesus lived under the same demands and weight of the law of God, the requirements of the law, yet Jesus fulfilled them all perfectly. He, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness for us. In this verse, Jesus' teaching is reminding us of how he cried out in the garden of Gethsemane. And he, how he cried out on the cross. If you remember, you can go back and read it in Luke 22. When, when he's praying in the garden the night before he was arrested, Jesus prayed and asked the Father, if there was any other way to accomplish salvation for his people, let there be another way. But ultimately, he submitted his will to the Father. In just a few verses, Luke records, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Remove this cup from me. Let this cup pass from me. What is Jesus talking about? Jesus knew what was in front of him. He knew what he had to do. He knew what the Father sent him to, to accomplish and to do. And Jesus knew that the cup that he had to drink was the cup of God's wrath that was going to be poured out on our sin. It was going to be poured out over and against our sin. And someone had to endure it. It was going to be us or it was going to be our mediator, our great high priest. So how do we, how do we reconcile the prayer request that Jesus prayed with the cross. It seems like it wasn't answered. Right? But Jesus prayed. Now, this verse, verse 7, in our passage tonight says that he was heard. It says he was heard because of his reverence, his godly fear, that he was sincere. Right? But it was, the prayer request was met with silence. Why? Because it was the Father's will to crush him. We should understand the Father saved the son from death ultimately not by removing the cross but by raising him from the dead because he didn't stay dead he's alive and that's why when, when we read it as a as a body tonight isaiah 53 10 we're reading about this beautiful truth yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he was 
put him to grief. Like, that was God's will to put that on Jesus, right? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. That's us. That's his, his sons and his daughters. And he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Jesus prayed for God's will to be done, and it was And this is our salvation. Our salvation is a result of Jesus' prayer. He accomplished it. And then he made it available to us. We see more of Jesus' solidarity in verse 8. Look at that with me. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus grew up like every other good, studious, Jewish little boy. Right, in Luke 2, 52, it says that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He grew up. He learned. He learned how to walk. He went to school. He learned to trade. He learned how to interact with people. He learned how to, to, to shake somebody's hand. He learned how to look people in the eye. He learned. He learned. He learned. And when it says that he learned obedience, that does not mean that he was disobedient. And then it switched to obedience. That's not what it means. It means that he grew in depth of yieldedness to God. Now, I don't, I don't know if yieldedness is a word, but he, he yielded more, more and more. Yielded is a word, I think. I, I can I make up words sometimes. But he grew in his yieldedness to God. And like it, was, it was in the midst of his pain and struggle in the, in the shadow of death, that Jesus learned obedience. And through his fleshly journey, Jesus, Jesus learned. Like through his life, because he was in the flesh, Jesus learned. Right? He, he learned our weakness. He learned what it's like to live in the flesh. He, he learned what it's like to be vulnerable. He learned what it's like to be lonely. He learned what it's like to suffer so he can relate with us. He learned to obey his parents. Joseph and Mary. He he obeyed the law of God perfectly. He obeyed the law of the land perfectly. Right? He suffered for his obedience. Even though Jesus was God's son, he submitted humbly to learn as a human and he suffered for it. Man, talk about life not being fair. Right? He knew what he was entering into. The eternal Son of God knew when he, when he came to earth and entered into the flesh, right? When he became an embryo, when he, when he was birthed into this world, he knew what he was going to enter into. I don't know about you, but like, when I think about this, like, I wouldn't willingly go back to middle school for my kids. Like, to go, I wouldn't enter into middle school again to go through middle school for my kids. Because I know what middle school is like. And I don't want to suffer again, you know? And, and so, like, it's, it's just unfathomable to think that Jesus knew what he was entering into. And he chose to enter into it still. He humbled himself and chose to take on the flesh still, right? And he, he knew that he was going to be perfectly obedient. And he knew that he wasn't going to be treated fairly. He... he He obeyed perfectly the law of God, the law of the land, and he was punished for it. He was punished for doing what was right. His suffering qualified him to be an all-sufficient Savior as the God-man. And I don't know about you, but all too often we learn more about God through suffering than through pleasure. 
right? We, we learn more and more about the depths of who our God is and how much he loves us and how much he's there through suffering more than through pe- pleasure time and time again. And I know everybody in the room probably has stories of suffering, of pain, and of loss, but being in pastoral ministry, you hear and you see it time and time again of the loss of a family member, the loss of a child, the struggle of suffering with infertility, or, or the loss of, of something. You, you see how people time and time again who lean in and rely on and trust in the Lord through their trials through their suffering, they come out on the other side and say, man, I would never have known this about our God if I wouldn't have walked through those valleys. Not that you can't learn about God on the mountaintop when life's great, right, when you're not walking through a trial, but man, how much more do we learn about God and his faithfulness when we have to rely and depend on him more and more and we go to him and we cry out to him? We learn more about him through the valleys of life. William Lane said this, Jesus freely accepted the suffering of death because Scripture and the author of Scripture, God, appointed him to this sacrifice in fulfillment of his office. The startling assertion of verse 8 is the paradox, listen, that the eternal Son of God was ordained to suffer death. Jesus learned experientially through his passion what obedience entails in order to achieve salvation and to become fully qualified for his office as our eternal high priest. He learned through obedience. He learned through suffering. He was qualified, perfectly, fully qualified to be our high priest. In verse 8, We see his obedience, and once again, his designation, his appointment was perfect. Look at verse 9, verse 9 and 10 with me as we close. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is designated by God, appointed, chosen, called, which speaks back to verses 1 and 5. This is the second main point, that Jesus is our eternal high priest, therefore our eternal source of salvation. In verse 9, it says he's being made perfect, not that he was imperfect and that he needed to become perfect, but that he was perfectly qualified to be our high priest. He's the source of our salvation, our eternal sacrifice, once for all time, never to have to be done again to be our perfect representative before the Father. He was made completely perfect by taking on flesh and not sinning and becoming our perfect sacrifice for sins. And this is how the incarnation is inextricably linked to the atonement. It's inextricably linked. You, you don't have the atonement without the incarnation. Right? Jesus had to become man in order to fulfill the priestly role. It was because Jesus became man that he represented men while dying on the cross. Jesus took away our unrighteousness and gave us his righteousness. That's why it says, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us in our place so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel In a verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jesus in my place, Jesus in your place, that is Jesus taking our unrighteousness, giving us his righteousness, the Lamb of God, 
being the source of our atonement. And I've been studying personally through the book of Luke. And this past week I got through chapter 11. And Jesus just got done casting out a demon. And he's teaching. And somebody interrupts him. This woman speaks up. And this is what she says. She raised her voice and she said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus replied to her, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. True blessedness comes from hearing the word of God and doing it. That's how true blessing comes. If you obey Jesus, you belong to Jesus. You are his offspring, as Isaiah 53.10 says. So if you combine Luke 11.28 with Hebrews 5.9, you get this. Jesus is our source of eternal salvation. Blessed are those who hear his word, follow him, and obey. Jesus is our source of eternal salvation. Blessed are those who hear his word, follow, and obey. Allie and I are desperately trying to teach our two little boys to understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not from anything that we do. We want them to understand that if they died today and they stood before the throne of God and God said, why should I let you in to my heaven? That their answer would not be because I went to church, because I read my Bible, because I obeyed my parents, because I gave money to the church, because I was a good person. Their answer should not be, I anything. Their answer should be, only Jesus. Only Jesus. Or you should say, you shouldn't. You shouldn't let me in. There's no reason why I should get in. I've done nothing to get in. Only Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's nothing that we do. It's not Jesus plus doing good things equals salvation. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And it's, and it's all by faith in Christ alone. It's in his substitutionary work, his atoning death on the cross. So Hebrews 5.9 says, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Jesus himself said in John 6, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. And later in John 14, Jesus himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus made salvation available for those who believe in him and love him and obey him. I'm going to close by reading a quote, and then I'm going to give four practical reasons, four practical lessons that we can learn, take away from our passage tonight. And this quote is in direct reference to the question, what does it mean to obey Jesus unto salvation? This is what it says. If you are to obey Jesus Christ, then you will have to own up to some things and repudiate some other things. You will have to confess that, that God is right to condemn you for your sins and for your own lack of righteousness. You'll have to confess that you are not and cannot be righteous in and of yourself because of the sin that is within you. 
And then you must reach out to Jesus Christ by faith, laying hold of his free offer of salvation, trusting his righteous life and sacrificial death for your only salvation. There is no other way. So four practical lessons that we can take away. Number one, pray in alignment with the sovereign will of the Father. Just like Jesus Pray in alignment with the sovereign will of the Father. Number two, Jesus trusted the Father. We should fully trust him as well. Number three, contemplate the humility of the eternal Son who became human, learned obedience, and suffered to save his people. And number four, look to Jesus, our appointed high priest, as the only source of our salvation. Let me read them again. Number one, pray in alignment with the sovereign will of the Father. May our prayers not be selfish prayers, but maybe kingdom-centered prayers. Praying in alignment with God's will, not desiring to have our own way, but praying and saying, God, at the end of the day, may your will be done, not mine. And then trust Jesus. Trust the Father, because the Father's plan was perfect. Jesus trusted the Father. We need to trust the Father. And we need to contemplate over and over again his humility. Think about the eternal Son becoming flesh, becoming a human, learning obedience and suffering to save us. And look to him. Look only to him as our appointed high priest, the only source of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this incredible word that you have given us. We praise you that you sent your son so that we would have an all-sufficient Savior. Jesus, thank you for doing what we could not do. Thank you that you understand what we walk through. And thank you for defeating our greatest enemies of sin and death. We acknowledge that you are alive today, that, that nothing else needs to be done to accomplish salvation. It's already been accomplished. It's done. You are our eternal source of salvation. You are our eternal high priest. I pray that you would open up eyes to see that for the first time tonight. Lord, I pray that we would never forget it. I pray that it would humble us I pray that we would, like you, modeled for us, cry out to the Father as we walk through this life, this brief life. I pray that we would cry out to you, that we would walk in humility, that we would introduce people to you, Jesus, throughout our day, that we would never forget that you and you alone are our eternal source of salvation. It's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.